we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold let's talk finance wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot yahoo finance does just that it consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis making it easier to manage your investments Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Very big day in the market today. The most significant being the breakdown in both the NASDAQ composite and the U.S. dollar. The dollar was down sharply and broadly today, led lower by a rally in the euro. The catalyst for the euro rise were some statements by Mario Draghi early in the morning. Uh, basically where he said that he thought the downward pressures on inflation were transitory. So a somewhat uh, hawkish uh, stance on inflation. And the markets took that to mean that QE will come to an end sooner rather than later. But, you know, I think the markets are looking for any reason to trade the dollar lower. I've been talking about that on this podcast, that the dollar has been looking weak It broke down today. Again, the dollar index down just over one full percentage point on the day. Uh, Dollar trading at its lowest level in eight months. I think we actually did gain back a little bit near the close. I think we closed. Right now we're at uh, uh, 96.37 on uh, the dollar index. And I think that's the lowest closing level in about nine months. The euro now trading at a 113 handle. At the same time, the dollar was breaking down. So were tech stocks. The FANG stocks were particularly weak. The NASDAQ composite down just over 100 points on the day. Uh, That's a pretty big move, what, 1.6 percentage point decline in the NASDAQ. I mean, the Dow is only down about 100 points. And so that's just under a half a percent. So about triple the decline. But I talked about that on this podcast uh, couple episodes ago when we had that one really big reversal day 
in the NASDAQ stocks where the NASDAQ made a new all-time record high and then closed negative where we had that kind of flash crash, uh, you know, coming into the final hour of trading or just before the final hour. And to me, there was some real money, some big money decided to get out of those stocks. And so I thought that that could have been a warning sign uh, that the top is near. You know, we probably had a great uh, bell ringing. You know, they say that they never ring a bell at the top, but Janet Yellen might have rung one today when she was giving this speech. And she basically said that she was pretty sure that we would never have another financial crisis in our lifetimes. And I'm not really sure how young the oldest person was that was in that room. But that is an incredible statement for her to make, especially since an even worse financial crisis is probably around the corner. And I think that's almost a guarantee. It reminds me of that 1929 famous statement, you know, stocks have reached a permanent plateau, you know, and then, of course, the market collapsed. And so that is one of those type of iconic comments coming out of Janet Yellen, the hubris of a Fed chairman. We're never going to have another financial crisis in our lifetimes, even though the last financial crisis was caused by the Fed and the Fed was oblivious to the crisis right up until it was over. They still couldn't see it coming. And now everything they've done guarantees that the next crisis that they are also responsible for causing will be even bigger than the last one. You know, gold prices were up today, but only a few bucks. And gold, I think, is still recovering from the early morning monkey hammer that happened at 4 a.m. yesterday when out of nowhere someone came in for no reason and dumped like $2 billion worth of gold on the market when barely anybody was trading. Obviously, when you see these kinds of major sells, it's obviously the intent of the seller to drive the price of gold down. He's not trying to get the best price he can on his sell. He's trying to move the market because he's trying to profit from some other way. I mean, I don't know, maybe he's got options going on or something, some, but there's some other way that he's profiting by trying to do technical damage to the gold market. So gold has recovered off those lows, but I think yesterday's big decline is one of the reasons uh, that gold probably wasn't stronger today, given the incredible weakness in the dollar. In fact, gold prices fell sharply, basically, in every currency but the dollar, right? Because the dollar was down a lot more than the price of gold was up. So in terms of the euro, gold had a big down day today. It was only up in terms of the U.S. dollar. But I think that is going to change. And in fact, yesterday's big selling in the dollar happened despite the fact that later in the morning, we got some horrible economic news, as if we didn't need any more bad news. You know, when it rains, it pours. We got the durable goods numbers for May. Last month, we, were, we got a negative 0.7 for durable goods, and they were expecting an improvement to negative 0.4. Instead, we got a double that barrel of disappointment. Last month's down 0.7 was revised to down 0.9, and what we ended up getting for May instead of down 0.4 was down 1.1. So a bigger decline this month from an even bigger decline last month. Uh, horrible number. This is weak across the board. And, you know, X transportations, they were looking for 0.5. They got 0.1. And again, they revised last month's decline to an even bigger decline. We have back-to-back -back declines. We're at the lowest level in a year and a half. And the Fed just raised rates, and supposedly they're about to raise them again. Now, I actually was surprised that the Atlanta Fed 
when they uh, came out later in the day yesterday, didn't revise down their 2.9% forecast for Q2 GDP. Remember, uh, the New York Fed is already at 1.9. I think they're too high. By the way, we get the final read on Q1 GDP on Thursday. You know, the last time we got it, it was 1.2. I still think that they ought to take that down. If you look at some of the numbers that have come out, they've been very weak. Also yesterday, another very weak report was the Chicago Fed National Activity Index. That was supposed to come in at 0.32. Instead, it came in as a negative 0.26. So a very, very weak number. Three-month moving average moved down from 0.21 to 0.04. And in fact, the prior three-month moving average was revised down from 0.23 to 0.21. So everything is getting worse. And so the dollar is going down. Again, the Fed has got to be close to finishing its tightening cycle. And again, the only reason that they're really raising rates and probably the reason that they stepped up the pace of rate hikes is because they see the economy is getting weaker faster and they're trying to hurry up and build up some ammo. Because once the economy is obviously in a recession, they want to be able to cut. So they're like hurrying to get in front of this next recession. Obviously, it's even possible that these rate hikes uh, exacerbate the severity of their very recession that they're hoping to get out in front of. But the currency markets are sensing this. The gold market is going to uh, react to this as well. You know, eventually these people that are selling this gold early in the morning in the wee hours, they're going to get it, you know, handed right back to them. Someone's going to take this, take their offer and they're just going to bid it. And uh, this whole thing is going to be absorbed and the market is going to go straight up for the price of gold. People should be buying gold now. They should be taking advantage of this and not just, you know, people that are in, you know, dollars or people that are in the stock market. But again, you know, if you're in these cryptocurrencies, you know, we've had a huge decline so far in the cryptos from the highs. Remember, I think the, the market peak for the market cap of all the cryptos a week ago got up to $118 billion. And earlier this morning, it was down to about $87 billion. So a pretty big drop. Now, you know, I posted uh, an article about this big decline. I mean, you talk about 20, 25% overnight evaporation of market cap. But, I, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big move in a short period of time. So I put it up there on my Facebook page, and of course somebody accuses me. Oh, why do you only put you know post articles when the cryptos go down? And meanwhile, look how much they've gone up. So this decline doesn't mean anything. Look, I, I've posted plenty of articles about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies going up. I mean, I do that all the time. It's just that I think it's a bubble, you know. And it's clearly to me, if people bought these cryptocurrencies a couple of years ago, and if they still have them, hey, that's a great trade as long as you sell. If you don't sell, you're going to watch all your profits evaporate. And so if you have a lot of unrealized profits in cryptocurrencies, you can take a lot of that risk off the table and buy gold in front of this next move. And I said this once before. I do believe that a major catalyst that will cause the cryptocurrencies to fall is a breakout in the price of gold. And we haven't even had that yet. But you know, if you actually look at how the cryptocurrencies are trading, they have a pretty high correlation to the NASDAQ, to the FANG stocks, because it's all momentum, right? The momentum stuff is going up, which includes overpriced uh, tech stocks, social media companies, and cryptocurrencies. So it's trading more like a risk asset than a safe haven like gold. But I do think that when gold breaks out, there is going to be some money that is going to be moving out of cryptos into gold. 
And on the margin, that can add substantial selling to a market where you can already see uh, you can have incredible drops in value in a very, very short period of time. And I don't even know that there's been significant selling. I have no idea what the actual volume is that has produced this type of volatility, these types of declines. But believe me, if the volume picked up because more people decided that, hey, this is a top, I want to cash out. Remember, you need to have two sides of a trade, right? It takes two to tango. And if a bunch of people want to sell these cryptos, as long as there's not a, another bunch of people who want in, uh, then the, just the market just implodes. I want to skip over to politics because I think it's possible that some of the Republican senators are listening to this podcast. And, you know, it's, it would be a good thing if they do. Because my last podcast that I put out over the weekend, I explained why the Republican repeal and replace bill for Obamacare was not only worse than the House bill, but worse than Obamacare itself. That if we passed the original version of the Republican bill, that it would have led to the demise of the health insurance industry even quicker, and it would have put us on a quicker path to a complete government takeover of health care. And I pointed out the biggest fatal flaw was that they had absolutely no punishment whatsoever on people who did not buy insurance, yet they had an outright ban without any wiggle room where insurance companies had no choice but to give people insurance regardless of how sick they were at the same price of somebody who was completely healthy Yet there was no requirement to buy insurance. So I said, nobody's going to buy it. Only the sick people are going to buy it. No healthy person will buy. The whole thing is going to implode. And yesterday afternoon, the Republicans actually figured this out. Now, did they figure it out because they listened to my podcast or they just figured it out some other way? Because I didn't read anything about this. I mean, I was looking all over the Internet, reading articles. Nobody was worried about this. Then all of a sudden, you know, everybody's talking about it. So what did the Republicans do to try to solve this moral hazard that they would have created? And what they did, and this is different than what the House did. And I think the Senate's punishment will be more effective or less ineffective is probably a better word than the House version. Remember, what the House said was that if you don't have insurance and then you wait until you're sick to buy it, the only punishment was that you paid 30% more than healthy people would pay, but only for one year. So I thought, and I did a podcast on it at the time, that that is asinine, that that penalty is so low that no one's going to care. I mean, if let's say I don't buy health insurance and I go five or 10 years without a problem, that's 10 years. I don't pay any health insurance. If I just have to pay 30% more for one year, that's tiny. I'm going to save an enormous amount of money by not buying insurance. So that penalty wouldn't have worked. So nobody would have bought insurance. And that little teeny 30% premium for a year wouldn't amounted to anything. And the insurance companies would have gone broke. And of course, that little punishment that's what caused President Trump to call it mean, right? Oh, it's mean because it's forcing the sick people to pay extra, you know, as if that made it mean. Well, if the House version was mean, now the Senate version is even meaner because they went from no punishment to a six-month waiting period. So what they're saying is that if you get sick and then you want to buy insurance because you're sick, you got to wait six months before the insurance kicks in and they start paying your your, your claims. Now, of course, you don't have to pay the premiums during that waiting period, but you can't collect any benefits 
during the six months, right? And so the Republicans are hoping, well, then, you know, people will buy insurance because if something happens to them, they don't want to run the risk of getting stuck with six months worth of medical bills. And so they're going to buy insurance anyway. Now, of course, the Democrats immediately label this as mean, oh, this is not fair, forcing sick people to wait six months for their insurance. You know, they're going to have to go through six months of pain. What if they die during the waiting period, right? That's all they can do. Oh, this is horrible. This is mean. But of course, you need to do something if you are going to say that insurance companies can't discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. Nobody will buy insurance while they're healthy. So insurance can't work. So you have to do something. Obamacare, what they did is, well, you're required to buy insurance. Everybody has to buy it. Fine. But the penalties were too low. The fine for not buying it was so low that everybody would pay the fine and not buy it because the Democrats didn't have the guts politically to make the fine high enough to actually force anyone to buy insurance. And of course, had they done that, the Supreme Court would have said it was unconstitutional. But the Republicans have the same problem. They want to maintain this idea that the insurance companies can't discriminate based on pre-existing conditions because the voters like it, but they want to do something to try to force people to buy, yet what they come up with won't work because they don't want to actually make the penalties high enough to actually compel somebody to do it because politically those penalties are a non-starter for anybody who wants to get elected. But here is the problem with the Senate version, and this is why it will not work. So under the Senate version with this six-month waiting period, what that means is that if you get sick, right, if you get cancer or you develop, you know, any kind of major condition or you need to be on long-term treatment, right, you need major prescription drugs that you have to take, you know, forever, right, you're only on the hook for six months worth of bills, right? That's it. After that, it's going to get paid for by somebody else. See, normally when you buy insurance, you want to buy a policy that's comprehensive enough to take care of medical problems that may last 10, 20, 30 years. Who knows, right? So those plans are expensive because the insurance companies assume a lot of risk when they sell you that plan because they're on the hook for a lifetime of medical bills. But if insurance companies can sell you a plan that just covers your medical bills for six months, obviously they can sell that plan to you for a lot less money. And that is what people will buy, right? Maybe they'll call it uh, waiting period insurance, right? Insurance companies will sell waiting period insurance. And the way waiting period insurance would work would be you buy a policy and it, you can't put in a claim until you buy another policy that's more comprehensive, right? So let's say I buy this uh, waiting period insurance and I pay my, my, my monthly premiums, which will be pretty low because there's really not a lot of coverage at the end of the day. It just gets me through the six month period, right? So I buy the waiting period insurance and I make my, my payments, but I can't put any claims in. So if I wanna to go to the doctor, I just have to pay for it. But of course I'll have plenty of money to pay for routine medical care because I'm saving a fortune in expensive insurance that I no longer need thanks to this Republican bill. Now, if something bad happens to me, then I go and buy an insurance policy with all the bells and whistles that pays for everything. And that's when uh, my six month waiting period, a policy kicks in. It will then pay my medical bills for those six months. For the six months between the time I buy a more comprehensive policy and the end of the waiting period. That's it. Problem solved. Now, that will likely be more expensive than what the House agreed to. 
but it's still a lot cheaper than actually buying the insurance. Now, of course, the companies that sell the uh, waiting period insurance, they will also have a uh, a six-month uh, waiting period for that, right? Because they don't want people uh, to be able to buy the insurance if they're already sick. So they would impose a six-month waiting period on anybody with a pre-existing condition. Now, if you don't have a pre-existing condition, then there won't be a waiting period. You can buy as long as you're healthy. Yeah, you, they'll sell you that policy in a minute, right? Because statistically, they're going to make money on it because you're not going to put in a claim. But they will have a six-month waiting period. So if you're already sick, you won't be able to buy waiting period insurance because it will be worthless. Because if you're going to wait six months, you might as well wait six months for regular insurance. So this is a perfect product. It will be profitable for any company that sells it uh, because they can, they'll can they only sell it to healthy people so they can price it to be profitable. But because only healthy people buy it and because the the, the benefits are, are capped at, a, at six months, it'll be cheap. And of course, people could make it cheaper if they want to buy it with a higher deductible or if they don't want to have coverage for things like, you know, pregnancy or babies. I mean, if they're going to pay for these things out of pocket, they can exclude that stuff uh, from being part of that six-month window. Because obviously, let's say you get pregnant and you decide, oh, I want to have insurance to cover the baby. I can buy the policy and, you know, the first six months of your pregnancy, that the bills aren't that high. The bills don't get high until the baby is born nine months later. So you get pregnant, you know, you can immediately uh, sign up for regular insurance. And in the meantime, you have your uh, waiting period insurance. And then by the time the baby is born, well, you know, you have the regular insurance. And if everything goes OK, there's no major problem. You can cancel that policy, go right back on. Uh, the uh, the waiting period policy. So everybody will be able to game this system. I mean, the uh, solution, once again, doesn't work. Just like with the Democrat solution, it didn't work. The penalties were too low. These, both in the House and the Senate, what they are doing to try to force people to buy insurance won't work. Nobody will buy insurance because they're not making the punishment for not buying it heavy enough. And the reason they can't do that is politically it's, it's a losing proposition, which is why the Republicans never should have touched this issue. If they did not have the guts for outright repeal, they should never have done anything. They should have just left it alone, and then the Democrats would have owned this disaster. And I still think the best thing they can do politically is do nothing. Let the uh, Democrats own this. Just come out and say, you know what? We're not doing anything. We're not making any changes because don't let the Democrats blame the, the collapse on the lack of certainty, the, the, the confusion, the, the ambiguity. People don't know whether it's here, whether it's going to stay. So they're trying to blame all that uncertainty on some of the failures that were happening anyway. So take that away. Just leave it there. We're done. We're not repealing it. This is what we got. Let the Democrats own the disaster because if they replace it with any of these things, it's going to be a complete disaster and it's on them, right? It's on the Republicans. They will own this and they will take the Democrats off the hook. It is a massive get out of jail free card for Democrats. Now, I still read all these articles that talk about how it's so unfair that insurance companies deny coverage, turn down sick people. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. I mean, that, that, that is their function. Their function is not to insure sick people. 
Their function is to sell policies to healthy people, and the healthy people should want this. That's the only reason that insurance is affordable. It's because the insurance companies don't sell it to people who are already sick. They sell it to healthy people who are probably not going to get sick. That is the whole concept of insurance. Remember, when you're actually buying insurance, you're really making a bet with the insurance company. You're betting that you get sick, and the insurance company is betting that you stay healthy. And, of course, they're going to try to screen the bet. They're going to have to make sure. They want to make sure that you're as healthy as possible before they bet that you don't get sick, right? Now, why should they make a bet that they know they're going to lose? If you're already sick, by definition, they lose, right? So why should they take the other side of, of that trade? I mean, when you make the bet yourself, you bet that you're going to get sick. You hope you lose because you don't want to get sick. And when you lose, the insurance company keeps your premium. And that is the business they're in. They're in the business of keeping premiums, right? They want to take in as much as they can and pay out as little as they can. That is the business that they're in. That is what insurance is all about pooling risk, right? And it was a great invention and it makes life much better because there are a lot of things that are very risky, but people get together and pool the risk, right? So, hey, I don't know, maybe I'm going to get sick. I'm very healthy, but it's possible I can get sick. So a bunch of healthy people pool their risk of getting sick and the insurance company makes that possible. And then the few people that get sick, they take the money from all the people who didn't get sick. But if the insurance companies that sold policies to sick people, then the whole thing wouldn't work and there would be no money to pay the healthy people who happen to get sick. So all these articles are wrong and we have to separate insurance from healthcare. Insurance companies are not healthcare providers. They are not there to deliver health care. They're just there to give you insurance so you can pay for your health care if something bad happens and you don't have the money. So the insurance policy kicks in to help you afford it. But if you're talking about why is health care expensive, that's a whole different system. But trying to hang it all on the insurance companies because they're unpopular, right? People don't like them. So politically, just going after the big evil insurance companies, right, who deny people coverage, right, that, that, that makes, that's good politics. But of course, if insurance companies never denied claims, if they just put through every claim and they didn't investigate them, they didn't look at fraud, then insurance wouldn't work because it would be too expensive because people would know they could defraud the insurance companies because they just paid every claim because they want to be nice, right? They don't want to be nice. They have an obligation to make sure that they're not paying more claims than they're legally required because that's the way they keep the premiums low for all their customers. And the reason insurance works is because the premiums were low. If the premiums were high, then people couldn't afford to pool the risk because just the cost of the pool would be too expensive. And that is what is going to happen as a result of this Senate plan because all of the healthy people are going to buy just waiting period insurance. They will not be buying regular insurance. The only people who will be buying regular insurance are the people who are sick enough to need it, which means the insurance companies that sell regular insurance are going to lose money on every policy. So how are they going to stay in business? Taxpayers. The taxpayers are going to have to funnel massive amounts of money. And that's the other thing that the Republicans got wrong in the Senate bill. Just like the Democrats, when they're scoring this bill, they're scoring it in a vacuum. They're not doing a dynamic scoring by taking into account the change in behavior that will be a direct consequence of the policy. You know, people are talking about, oh, all these people are going to lose their health insurance 
under the Republican plan. They're not going to lose it. They're going to voluntarily give it up because they no longer need it. All they need is a little uh, uh, a plan to cover them during the waiting period. That's all you need. Who cares about what happens after six months? I just need something to cover me through the gap. And of course, that was a last minute addition. Before that, they didn't even have anything. Now, of course, now the Republicans have already said they're going to delay this vote until after the July 4th holiday. Look, the best thing they can do is don't even have the vote. I mean, forget it. You don't have the votes for real reform. You want to come out. I mean, what does Donald Trump want anyway? He's, he keeps talking about what a big disaster Obamacare is going to be. And he's right. So why take the Democrats off the hook and put the Republicans on it with a disaster that's just as big, if not worse? Leave well enough alone and go on the tax reform and actually do tax reform, not tax cuts. But they also got to cut government spending because if the only thing they do is cut taxes and if they make a deal with the Democrats to increase government spending, look out the way because the deficits are going to soar and the dollar is going to tank and gold is going to take off. But unfortunately, that is probably what is going to happen. One last article that I wanted to talk about. I read this story and I put it up on my Facebook page. You know, McDonald's uh, was introducing all these kiosks, or they are introducing them. And the kiosks basically will enable you to order and pay using a machine rather than a cashier. And of course, the reason that McDonald's is introducing these labor-saving devices is to save on labor costs. And the decision is all the more economical because of the rising minimum wage. Because businesses always have to do a cost-benefit analysis when they make an investment, a capital investment. So if McDonald's is going to spend money to buy these kiosks, what is the cost? The cost is the price to buy it, less uh, you know the, the maintenance right the depreciation because if you buy the machine you know how long will it last before you have to buy another one what is the cost so they that's the cost side what is the benefit the benefit is the money you don't pay in wages because you've eliminated a job that is the only benefit is that you cut labor now of course you know you also could gain some efficiencies right because the machines could be quicker but again, that's all about labor because you can always hire more people uh, to be quicker. So the only real benefit of a labor-saving device is the, the labor that you no longer pay. And you compare that to the cost of buying the device. And obviously, the more expensive labor is, the more you benefit by eliminating it. So obviously, this is a clear reason why McDonald's is doing this. And then all of a sudden, of course, there's all this, you know, chatter online. This is so mean. McDonald's is, you know, laying people off. They're substituting people for equipment, which of course is exactly what they're doing, but they don't like the way that sounds. So they come out and they deny. They say, no, 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 no. We're not going to fire people. We are not um, investing in these machines in order to reduce workers. We're just going to use the people who used to be cashiers. We're just going to reassign them to different jobs in the restaurant, which is pure, unadulterated BS. I mean, number one, probably one of the main reasons they're saying this is because it's just bad publicity, right? Hey, we're laying off workers. That's bad, right? You know, they don't want to have a bad reputation. So they deny the fact that they're doing this bad thing uh, by substituting human beings uh, for machines. But also, I don't think McDonald's wants to give credibility to the arguments against the minimum wage, right? Because obviously, 
you know, they could they could say, yes, we're doing this because, you know, you raised the minimum wage and you made it too expensive to hire people. So as a result of a higher minimum wage, we have to fire people. I mean, I would love for them to say that. But I think one of the main reasons McDonald's doesn't want to say that is because they're happy about it, because a lot of their smaller competitors don't have the money to make the capital investments. And so they just go out of business because of the increase in minimum wage. So driving competitors out of business by raising the minimum wage is a good thing for McDonald's. So why should they mess it up by pointing out all the layoffs that are the result of the higher minimum wage? You know, by the way, there was another uh, study that just came out. I put that up on my Facebook, too, that showed and it was from Seattle. And it showed that because they've raised the minimum wage in Seattle, low skilled people have actually been hurt because they're actually making less money now with a higher minimum wage than they were before because employers have cut back on their hours uh, because of the increased wages. So, you know, they, they're actually earning less money. Now, they have more leisure, but I'm not sure that that's what the whole point was, so that people could have spend less time working. But, of course, all these studies that try to show that the minimum wage is bad are unnecessary because it's intuitively obvious. I mean, it's basic economics that they're bad. It's amazing that people can forget about economics that's so basic. I mean, supply and demand is a basic law of economics. As the price of something goes up, the demand goes down. I mean, that's a law. That's like the law of gravity in physics. I mean, it doesn't change. It's a constant. And if you make unskilled labor more expensive, the demand for unskilled labor will go down. That means there'll be jobs. I mean, that's why they've actually had studies, too, where they look at the movement of people. And they found that people tend, low-skilled people, move out of states that have high minimum wages and they move into states that have low minimum wages. Now, if a high minimum wage was such a good thing, why aren't all these low-skilled workers rushing to these states with high minimum wages so they can make more money? And the reason is the higher the minimum wage, the less jobs that there are available for low-skilled people. So if you're a low-skilled worker and you want a job, you have a better chance of finding one in a state with a lower minimum wage than in one with a higher minimum wage. So it's you know, more proof that we don't need that it is bad. But anyway, so McDonald's obviously, you know, doesn't want to point to the minimum wage. But I'm laughing as I'm reading these stories, you know, from McDonald's. And they're saying, well, you know, we're going to reassign uh, these cashiers and they're going to go to table service. I mean, come on. So now McDonald's is going to have waiters. They don't have waiters now. Right. You go to the counter, you order your food. You give them the money and they they hand it to you. And then, you you know, you just walk to your table. All right. There's no waiters and waitresses at McDonald's. Now what? They're going to get rid of the cashiers so they can turn them into waiters. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? I mean, there's no way they're going to have waiters. Now, are we supposed to tip them? You know, because most waiters and waitresses, they, they, they make the, their income off of tips. Do you think people at McDonald's are going to start tipping people who, uh, you know, bring their their fast food uh, to their to their table? Meantime. You know, if they're not going to be tipped, if they're going to pay these waiters and waitresses flat out minimum wage, that's going to make them pretty high waiters and waitresses because most of them work below the minimum wage because they, they're able to, you know, calculate the tips that they earn as part of their salary. But if people are not going to be tipping uh, these cashiers turned waiters, then they're just going to have to pay them all this money. I mean, so they're going to McDonald's is going to spend all this money investing in labor saving devices and yet they're not going to harvest any of the benefits of the labor-saving devices because they're not going to actually save on labor because they're not going to lay anybody off. Now, I also read articles, you know, maybe they'll make them greeters. You know, they'll stand there and welcome you to McDonald's. I mean, come on. Or I think I read one article, what maybe they're going to use them to have a delivery service. I mean, look, 
All these jobs are going. It is obvious. I mean, what happened to all the people that used to pump uh, gas at self-service gas stations? I mean, what, what jobs do they now have at gas stations that they didn't have before? None. They're all gone. I mean, all of these businesses that have found machines to do the work of human beings, they don't just find other places to use those human beings. They've eliminated the humans from that task. Now, you know, maybe other businesses could find ways to employ them, but not with these minimum wage laws. I mean, if you have a high enough minimum wage, the people that lose their jobs that don't have skills are never going to get another job. They are permanently unemployed as a result of the minimum wage. I mean, and that is the biggest problem. And if you talk to people too about the minimum wage who are in favor of it, I always suggest asking them if they would be in favor of a law that makes it illegal for certain people to work. And most of them will say, no, no, I don't want to make it illegal for people to work. Well, then you're got to be against the minimum wage because that's exactly what it does. The minimum wage says, if you cannot convince an employer to pay you a certain amount of money, then you're not allowed to work. Even if you can find people who will hire you for less than the legal minimum, it is illegal. You cannot accept that job even if there was an employer willing to provide it. And so it has to be, the minimum wage always has to be an issue of individual rights and individual liberty. It's my right as an individual to accept any job that I see fit to take at the highest pay that I'm able to get. And it's not up to some, you know, uh, liberal, uh, you know, earning a high living, right? Up, up in the, you know, the ivory towers of academia, right? Making a good living. And then to tell me, no, that job is beneath you. The pay is too low. Sorry, you can't have that job. I mean, it's the nerve of these liberals to think that they know best, right? That they should tell other people how to live their own lives and what jobs to take and what jobs not to take. People have to understand that individuals are in the best position to do what's right for themselves. And when other people try to assume that responsibility for other people, it leads to disaster. And the other thing I'll say in closing, what always makes me crazy is the same people that think that most Americans are too dumb to know what jobs to take and what jobs not to take. We got to make sure they vote. They, they got to get out there and vote. We want to have everybody voting, even though we don't believe they have enough responsibility to be able to make decisions for themselves, right? They can't decide, you know, what food to eat. They can't decide where to get a haircut. You know, the government has to protect everybody because we're all a bunch of idiots, yet it's important that we all go out and vote. Oh,